bet y'all didn't know you'd be learning theology from the office tonight, did you? Um, here's the reality. We are more like Stanley than we realize sometimes. Like, we've all been there. You've been like, hey, where's my phone? As you're sitting there holding your phone. Or where are my glasses? And they're on top of your head. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I was in, the, in our backyard in the wooded area, and I was trying to find which path was the best path to take. And there was two paths, and I was standing there right at the fork of it, like, should I go here or here? Going back and forth, back and forth. And I was about to take one, and I looked up, and then out of nowhere, I realized that there was a massive spider web in the path with a massive spider that had to be like that big. And I was like, oh my gosh, I've been standing here deliberating for five minutes and didn't realize that the spider was right there. It was sitting there in plain sight, but I did not see it. We've all been there. We've had things that were right in front of us and the saying of, hey, if it were a snake, it could bite you. And the reason why I tell you that is tonight, we're gonna read a passage in John chapter seven where Jesus is right in front of so many people. Like they are right there with Jesus, yet they miss him. And so that's what we're going tonight. Our big idea that we're diving into for tonight is proximity to Jesus does not necessarily equate to saving belief. Just because you're in the vicinity of Jesus, just because you're around him, does not necessarily mean you have saving belief. So that's where we're going tonight. We'll be in John chapter 7. Um, and so we'll be reading through, working through those verses. But let me pray for us before we dive into the text. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. God, that we are laid bare before it. God, that it is your word preserved for us, that in it there is life. And so, Lord, we plead with you, plead with your Holy Spirit to give us eyes to see it, give us ears to hear it, give us hearts that are humbled and willing to be shaped and molded by your word tonight. Lord, be with us, bless this time, let it be fruitful for our hearts. We commit this time to you. Lord, we love you and we trust you. In your name we pray, amen. So I wanna just walk through these verses. I wanna read through them and kind of break them down for us and then we'll kind of see what it's meaning for us. So starting in chapter seven, verse one, it says, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee he would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast, the Jews' feast of booze was at hand. So after this, Jesus, what it's referring to there is Jesus had in the previous chapter just said some really hard things after he had fed a multitude and people were kind of following around saying, oh, what's he going to do with miracles? Like, what's he going to do for me? And Jesus speaks some hard truths and disciples start leaving him in droves. They, they desert him, and he looks at his 12 disciples, and he says, hey, are you going to leave too? And Peter is like, where else would we go, Jesus? Only you have the words to life. And so they stick with him, but he's had, had people leave. He's done some miracles. He's got a following about him. But it says he wouldn't go to Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. He, again, had rubbed some religious leaders the wrong way. They didn't like him because they recognized that the things he was claiming to them was dangerous. It was dangerous to their authority, dangerous to what they knew because they realized what he was claiming is he was claiming deity. He was claiming to be one with God, and it didn't roll with them. And so they were plotting to kill him, and so he was kind of keeping his distance. But it says the Feast of Booths was at hand. The Feast of Booths was this Jewish feast where they would go and they would celebrate and remember the time when they were in the wilderness and uh, 
Moses had led the people into the wilderness, and they were dwelling in tents. And so the Feast of Booze was them remembering their hardships in that time. And so they'd all gather and celebrate this. So continuing on in verse 3, it says, So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see your works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he sees, seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed him. Which is astounding, right? The fact that Jesus' own brothers, like we get it when he starts saying things and the religious leaders are like, yeah, I'm not seeing it. We get it when other people maybe don't understand, but his family doesn't get it. The guys who had grown up with him, who had watched him, who had spent time with him, who knew him better than anyone else, it says not even they believed in Jesus. They had close proximity to him, yet they missed him. He was right in front of their face. He was sitting there in plain sight, but they didn't get it. They missed Jesus. Continuing on um, in verse 6, it says, Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that the works are evil. And so he says, you go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. So the disciples or his brothers saying, hey, you go to this feast, go make your ministry public, go, go uh, assert yourself in the public eye. And Jesus is like, no, 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 I can't go. The world hates me because of what I've come to do. They're, they're hating me because I expose the sins and the evil of the world. And so I'm not going to go in the way that you say I should go. You go ahead and go. But then it says Jesus did end up going, but it's not that he was just outright lying. He just did not go in the way that they had intended him to go. They wanted him to go and make this big public show from beginning to the end. And, but it says Jesus, that was not his intent. That was not what was wise because his time was not yet come. His, the timing wasn't right. And so he goes up, but he goes in secret at first before he begins speaking publicly. So continuing in verse 11, it says, The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, He's a good man. Others said, No, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. So again, people kind of know who he is at this point. And with this big Jewish celebration happening, they're like, okay, he's got to come. This Jesus guy has got to be here. He's, he's going to be here. Where is he? Why has he not come up? And they, again, don't really understand him yet. They're kind of confused by him. Some are like, I think he's good. Like, he's doing good things. He, he seems to be a good guy. Others are like, ah, I don't know. But they kept it quiet because, again, the religious leaders, they didn't like them. And so they didn't want to be caught talking about Jesus, especially saying any kind of good things about him. So there's this buzz about the, the celebration about Jesus. Continuing in verses 14 through 20, it says, About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus, can, Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but is who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. 
The one who seeks his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? So Jesus, he goes into the temple and he begins to speak. And when he starts speaking, when he starts teaching, people's ears perk up. That there's something special about the way he teaches. He doesn't teach just like any other person. When he speaks, there's authority behind his words. And in this day, what would happen is you'd have these religious leaders who'd go through all of this training, all of this studying, they'd commit their life to studying the law, studying Moses and the prophets, and to commit themselves to God, and they would add all these rules to follow. They were these prestigious religious leaders, and they would teach the people, and they would preach to the people, and they would have disciples who would come and follow them, and they would teach their commands and teach their, their things to their disciples, and then their disciples would speak, but it would be on the authority of their teacher. And so when they hear Jesus, they're like, wait a minute. Who did he learn under? Like, who was his rabbi that he followed? And they're like, I don't think he had it. Like, he didn't have that kind of education. Where are you getting this from, Jesus? And he says, you don't get it. I come from the supreme authority. He tells us time and time again, I've been sent from God. Again, he had claimed to be God. That's what got them mad to begin with. And so he says, I'm speaking under the authority of God himself. And and he's like, listen, you, you claim to know Moses, but you're missing it. And, and then he talks about, hey, people are trying to kill me. And the crowd's like, wait a minute, are you crazy? What are you, are you, why, no one's trying to kill you, Jesus. But he knew that people were coming after him. And so he spoke with this authority. People notice. It stirs the people up. And then he continues on in uh, verses 21 through 24. Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it's from Moses, but it's from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So I love this because Jesus is going to poke holes in their logic. See, they, they were mad at Jesus earlier on because we talked about it uh, a few chapters ago where Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath day. He had been lame for many years, and Jesus heals him. The Pharisees were upset with him, and that's when he kind of started claiming deity, and they got even more upset with him. And right here, he just exposes the flaw in all their logic. He's like, listen, you know the letter of the law, but you, even you, when it comes time for circumcision, which they always did on the eighth day, what happens when it's on the Sabbath? You still circumcise. Because you recognize that there's that going to circumcision is walking in obedience to God, that it's not breaking the Sabbath law, that the Sabbath is meant to be a, a day of rest, a day of worship, and you circumcising a, a baby on the eighth day is you actually obeying God. You recognize that it's not a work that breaks the Sabbath. And so how much more so if me on this gift of Sabbath, the day where we rest in God and his work and we point to his restoration, we point to him, how much more is it not breaking the law for me to physically heal someone who'd been lame for many, many years? He says, your logic is so flawed. See, you know the letter of the law, but you've completely missed the heartbeat of the law. You're missing the whole point. And so he exposes their judgment. And we're not going to read the rest of the chapter, but for the rest of the chapter, they're like, okay, who is this guy? 
There's a division among the people. Is, is this a prophet? Is this the Christ? Is he, is he someone crazy? And, and people don't really know what to do with Jesus. But here's something that we see with all of this. They missed Jesus. Jesus was right there in front of them. He grew up with his brothers. He was speaking and teaching with the Pharisees. He was speaking to the crowds, and yet they missed him. How? How can you miss something right in front of you? How do they miss Jesus? The reason is because their hearts were hardened. The reason they missed Jesus is because their hearts were hardened, that they were filled with pride and filled with presumption. And so because of their hard hearts, they were blind to what was right in front of them. They missed Jesus. Think about it with his brothers. His brothers, again, we don't know the full context of why they said, hey, go to the festival so you can, can perform this stuff into crowds. When, when I read that, I hear it just laced with sarcasm. So I think one potential uh, heartbeat behind that is they grew up with Jesus. And like those of you with siblings know that it's, it's hard to grow up with siblings because a lot of times you're compared to them. When your sibling does well, it's like, why can't you be like your brother? Why can't you be like your sister? Like, it's tough. Imagine what it's like growing up with the Messiah. Like, they grew up with the God of the universe who was perfect in every way. Like, try and be more like Jesus. Like, okay, I can't do that. Like, there's this comparison that, that probably took place where in their ego, their pride, because they weren't like him, because they weren't getting the, the glory that he was getting, it probably hurt. And it probably deepened in their heart into bitterness, into envy. And so I hear when they say, hey, why don't you just go to the temple? And they kind of know that that's going to get him in trouble. And they're like, yeah, go make your public thing. You know what you're supposed to do, Jesus? Like I hear it with all kinds of sarcasm. Another potential, which this is what John Piper will say, is that they wanted glory. That they're associated with Jesus, because they're his brothers, they're his family. So when Jesus is magnified, when he's doing well and the crowds are following him, it's like, I'm brothers to that guy. Like, I beat him in sports growing up. Like, they, they can be associated with him and receive that glory. And so their hearts weren't set on the purposes of what Jesus was doing. Their hearts were filled with, with their own pride and selfishness and selfish ambition. And so they missed him because of their own pride. Think about the religious leaders. They not only were standing there with Jesus right then, but they studied the law. Like they knew the law. They could recite large, large portions of the Old Testament. They knew it front and back. But they knew the letter of the law, but they missed the heartbeat of the law. They knew the law and what Moses had taught, but they missed what it was pointing to. See, the, the law, the Old Testament, God's word is a reflection of his very own heartbeat. And when God incarnate was right in front of them because they missed the law, because they read it with selfish ambition, they read it with selfish intentions, and they had hard and uh, prideful hearts, they missed the incarnate God, the embodiment of it right in front of them. They weaponized God's law for their own purposes. They used it to heap loads of, of weight on the people. They used it to puff themselves up with pride and to elevate themselves. Look at how much I know. Look at how religious and righteous I am. Look at how close to God I am. They puff themselves up with pride. And since they puffed themselves up with pride, they missed Jesus. This law that they were supposed to know front and back, 
if they really knew it, they would have known immediately who Jesus was. Jesus, Jesus tells them, like, if you know, if your heart is set on the will of the Father, you will know that my teaching is true. That if you genuinely want to know the Father, you will know the Son. You will see the Son. You will recognize him. You would have embraced me. They missed him. And it's not just them, it's, it's plenty of others. There's plenty of people in that crowd who, they again, they knew the Old Testament. They're sitting there in proximity to Jesus, yet they missed Jesus. Like Judas, a disciple who walked with him in the most intimate settings, who firsthand witnessed of all these miracles, who participated in the ministry with Jesus, missed him. Because proximity to Jesus does not necessarily equate to saving belief. And here's the thing. It's easy for us to stand over it and look at these people and be like, man, how did you miss him? But we miss him too. That there are so many people who grow up around the church setting, who grow up doing sword drills with your Bible, who grew up memorizing verses, who grew up sitting under teaching. Or maybe if you didn't grow up, there's so many people who are in the Bible studies now, who are in church now, who talk about the things of God now, who are around Jesus a lot, but they miss him. Why? Because of pride and a hardened heart. They find themselves bitter towards other people. They find that, that they're envious of others and what happens for them. They find themselves looking down on other people. Like, oh, can you believe they live like that? Can you believe that? Can you believe they don't know that? Like, that's just a simple Bible thing. They, they find themselves puffed up with pride. They have their own presumptions that, that lead them to live their own way. Like, uh, I, I'm going to take parts of what Jesus says, but I, that's not really what he means. And, and you take this pride and this presumption, so you throw out things that the Bible so clearly says because you want to live your own way. You want to be the master of your own life. Pride keeps you from Jesus. It makes us miss what's right in front of us. See, we're a lot like them. So, so what's the solution? What's the answer to the problem? The way we don't miss Jesus is we humble ourselves before the Lord. We humble ourselves before the Lord. See, all throughout Scripture, there's this theme. There's even verse that appears in multiple places in James and Peter and in the Old Testament where it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud. That if we're going to dig in and we're going to harden our hearts, we're going to say, I'm going to do it my own way. I'm going to have my own presumptions. I'm going to puff myself up. I'm going to build my kingdom. It says that God will actively oppose you, that he is actively opposing you. But it says he gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the humble. So what does it take to be humble? How can we humble ourselves? We have a right view of ourselves and a right view of God. We must have a right view of ourselves and we must have a right view of God. That is the path towards humility. The right view of ourselves says that we are broken sinners, that, that we are far from God, that our pride, which was seen very in the very beginning of Scripture when it says, I know, my, I know the right way, I'm going to do my own thing, I'm going to take the fruit, and I'm going to 
be the arbiter of what's right and wrong, what's good and bad. Pride led to sin. We say, hey, I am a sinner. I am broken in sin. And we look in the right view of God says, and you are a holy God. You are righteous in every way. You are perfect. You are far above. You are transcendent. And I am broken. The only proper response to seeing a holy God and being aware of our own brokenness is humility. Hear this. True knowledge of God never, ever, ever puffs us up with pride. To truly have knowledge of God, to truly see God and who he is in his glory will absolutely never lead to pride. Truly seeing God always leads to humility. Because when we see his goodness, we become aware of our brokenness. Like that's what Jesus says he exposes. He says that's why the world hates him. He tells his brothers in the passage, he says, listen, the world doesn't hate you, but it hates me because I expose the evil that's in it. He says the the response when someone calls you out for doing wrong, if you have any kind of pride in your heart, what you do is you become defensive. You try to dismiss the person who's, who's calling you out. Well, you don't know what you're talking about. Or that you say, well, you're a sinful person too. Like you, you're, you're more messed up than I am. At least I'm not like this. Or you minimize it. You, you cast it away. You harden your heart and you get defensive. But the res- proper response is to be humbled before this Jesus. Jesus does not expose our sins to then leave us exposed. He exposes our sins He testifies of our brokenness in hopes of repentance, in hopes that we will humble ourselves before him and find forgiveness for our sins and be restored to right relationship with him. Because what it teaches us in scripture is that while we were still sinners, while we were indeed actively opposing God, while we were his enemies, Christ came down and died for us that he stepped into this broken world. He lived the perfect life, and he went and he took judgment on the cross that we deserved, that he took on the sins of the world, and he died on the cross, but then he rose from the grave in victory, and the promise is that when we humble ourselves before God and we believe in Jesus, turning from sins, that our sins are forgiven, they're crucified on the cross, that we are made clean, that we are restored to right relationship with God. Because he gives grace to the humble. And so this is our hope. That the passage, when we read challenging passages like this, it's never meant to just leave us in our brokenness. It's never meant to just beat us down and say, you're broken, and then walk away. It's meant to to lead us to true hope. And that's what this passage does. I I think what's so cool about this is what we find about Jesus' brothers. They, They didn't believe in him. They opposed him. Yet after his resurrection, what we find in Acts 1.14 is that he and his mother and his brothers, or his, his mother and his brothers would come to faith in him. That James, James, who is the brother of Christ, becomes a leader in the church, becomes a pastor, writes the book of James that's in our New Testament. And what I love about this book is it doesn't start with, here I am, James, the brother of Christ. It says, James a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I know those of you with siblings know that you're probably not starting off too many things. 
like, I'm not going to say Ryan, a servant of his sister Morgan. Like, that's not happening. That, that takes a whole lot of humility there. But that's what James, after he has encountered the risen Christ, he sees him for who he is. He believes him for what he is. And he says, I'm a servant to this Christ. We see it with even the, the picture of the Pharisees, these people with hard hearts. We see it with the Pharisee of Pharisees, Paul. Paul in his former life was Saul. He was the Pharisee of Pharisees. He was actively opposing God and, and actively opposing Christ. He was helping orchestrate the stoning of those who had submitted themselves to Christ. But then he encountered the risen Christ on the road to Damascus and his life was forever changed. That he humbled himself before Christ and he's restored, he's forgiven, and he lived his life submitting himself to Christ in humility. And he changed the world for it. See, there's hope that bleeds all through the pages of this scripture. That is our hope. And so there may be some of you tonight, and you have been close to the in the vicinity of Jesus for a long time. You've been in the Jesus places. You've been in church. You've been in Bible studies. But the reality of your condition is that you have never actually humbled yourself before God. That you have a hard heart. And you're filled with pride. And it's led you to bitterness. It's led you to, to be envious. It's led you to put others down and look down on others. And tonight, as you read the scripture, what the Holy Spirit does is he opens this up and opens your eyes to this reality. The good news for you is that if you humble yourself before the Lord, you will receive grace upon grace upon grace. That he opposes the proud, absolutely. And he will punish those who actively rebel against him. But he gives grace to the humble. And so I want to encourage you with that truth. Now, I want to be careful here, though. You might be saying, okay, like, I've got pride in my life. Like, I know I've got pride. Like, so does this mean that I'm not actually a Christian? Here's the reality. If, if having pride in your life means that you're disqualified and you're not a Christian, then none of us can be Christians. Like, that's, that's not for all of us. Because the reality is that we all struggle with that from time to time. But the truth of a Christian is this, that yes, we were filled with pride. Yes, we actively opposed God. But there was a time when we saw God for who he was and we saw us for who we were. We saw our sin and we humbled ourselves before God. And in this humility, we submitted to him and we were redeemed. We were restored. The Holy Spirit entered in us and began to mold and to shape and to soften that hard uh, heart of stone. But from time to time, we experience that battle of the flesh where we try to lean into that pride. And so we catch ourselves, uh, catch ourselves being filled in, in, with pride and with envy and all these different things. And so the step for us is to hold a continual posture of humility. That as we read this, that it should it should illuminate and expose the sin in our hearts because that's what the Bible does. That's what the word of God does. That's what Jesus claims to do, that it, it exposes it so that we can turn from it and repent of that sin. And so I think it's helpful for you to ask yourself, do you find yourself bitter a lot? Do you find yourself envious of others and jealous? Are you someone who is critical about everything? critiquing every little thing? Are you harsh and hard-hearted? Are you defensive? Is your life marked by pride or 
Is your life marked by humility? Is there a calmness about you? Is there a gentleness about you? A kindness? See, we're called to walk in humility. In fact, this is the only natural response. To be Christians, what we are claiming is that we were broken and far from God, but due to no, nothing we brought to the table, Christ stepped down and he redeemed us in our brokenness. That he saved us from certain death. That he extended grace after grace. So there is no logical stance to where we can stand in pride before a holy God. And so we keep our eyes on Christ and we find ourselves humbled. The only place we boast is in Christ. The only confidence we have is in Christ. That's why Paul says, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. I think of back whenever I was in uh, school, when I was a freshman in high school, I was on the football team, and we had a guy who was a stud. Like he was getting recruited in football, baseball, and basketball, all three sports. He could have gone and played in college. He was getting recruited in baseball to the MLB. He did not play football his senior year, and yet Mark Rick from Georgia came down to our school to recruit him. That's how good he was. Like he was a stud. And so when we went into any game, there's a confidence because we got DeAndre on our team. Like he's an, he's an amazing athlete. As a freshman, I was a scrawny little freshman who rode the bench, and that's a generous description of me. And so when we go into a game and I have confidence that we're going to win, rest assured my confidence was not in my ability there. I'm not thinking, oh, we're going to win because I'm on the team. I'm like, we're going to win. Why? We've got DeAndre. He's the best person, best athlete in the area, one of the best I've ever seen. We are going to win. And so I had confidence. I had pride. I boasted not in myself but in him because he was so amazing. That's the heartbeat of Paul here. He says, if I'm going to boast, believe me, it's not boasting in myself. I'm going to boast in Christ. My confidence doesn't come from anything I have to offer, anything I have to bring to the table. My confidence is in Christ. So I walk in humility. I walk with a humble confidence, not in myself, but in he who came and redeemed me. I walk in humility. And so just kind of wrapping it together for us, a question I think we all need to ask ourselves is, have I missed Jesus? I, I don't care if you've been in the vicinity of him for a long time. Ask yourself the question, have I missed Jesus? If you have, believe the truth and the hope that is in this passage. That, yes, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself before the Lord. See him for who he is and believe in him. Maybe you are someone who's walked with him for some time now, and you did humble yourself at one point, but you found yourself just ridden with the, the disgusting nature of pride that kind of creeps into each and every one of us. Humble yourself before the Lord. Have a right view of yourself. Look to the cross and look to him and trust and walk humbly but with confidence in who he is and his sacrifice for you.